Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Plotlines. I'm your host, Connor, and today is a very exciting episode. We're going to be following up on the episode, uh, like, it was a couple months ago, it feels like forever, uh, this uh, this this part has been in some way cursed i think uh with all with uh sort of figuring out if anybody's available and that sort of thing and then illnesses and uh my own scheduling craziness of the summer it's just been wild but i'm glad we're we have this today and we're going to be talking about sort of more more of sort of the larger topics within the coronation not just the like the elements, not just the sort of physicality, but also more what it means for the greater politics and, um, you know, world of the UK and the Commonwealth and even beyond that. So today I have with me Marcus Furious Pertinax, who is a awesome guest to have. If you haven't seen his episodes with Apostolic Majesty, he's all uh, you know. Check that out. His uh, Queen of the Ashes stream was important for my understanding of the British monarchy, as well as sort of how Queen Elizabeth left things where she did when she died. And then also, you can find him at, uh, from t- t- from time to time on Academic Agents uh, YouTube channel. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Thanks. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Connor. That was very, uh, very, very generous introduction. Um, and indeed, we've we have, like you say, we've laboured to try and get this uh, this episode out. Um, and indeed, because of the time difference between yourself and uh, where I am, obviously me being in Australia, it's always hard for me to, you know, organise things with most people. But no, thank you for for inviting me on. I'm you know very grateful for it. And uh, you know, um, we eventually got there in the end, like you say, you know, a bit of illness, bit of scheduling, you know, people meant to be, you know, on and not on and arranging, you know, all these extra bits is never easy as a host, as I'm sure you're well aware of, but we got there in the end. So it's good that we've uh, managed to finally get around to doing this because, uh, you know, the, the correlation, like you say, it feels like it's been, you know, months ago now. And, uh, and you mentioned our, um, our Queen of the Ashes stream, and it was kind of fortuitous that we decided to do that, you know, as we were sort of chatting pre-recording here, pre-show, um, you know, we kind of did it not exactly on a whim, but we sort of had a AM had a, a a spot in his schedule, and we sort of decided to do it because you know we had the time. And I mean, she passed away what a year later, maybe sort of eighteen months later, you know, maybe less. Uh, and it ended up being sort of an interesting little sort of summary of her um, of her reign. And from you know, I, as 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 the, the terminology I use, you know, from uh, essentially like a, a dissident right or a sort of a perennialist angle, you know, not the usual kind of mainstream interpretations of herself or the monarchy that you would get. And I think uh, I think AM was very sort of wise to think of that stream because I think it's a nice little you know uh, uh, bookmark in sort of history regarding the Queen. Um, and so yeah, no, it's good that we finally got here, and I'm I'm glad you actually watch the stream because uh you know it's, it's one of i think it's one of our best personally because aim and i we work really well together i find and um you know he's excellent at, at what he does so i'm pr- very privileged to be on his channel for sure yeah i think i've listened to that stream like maybe four or five times at this point uh, it's <laughs> definitely like there's there's so much with your your streams that you do with him and with any you know with arn mcintyre and uh academic agent 
there's just so much that sometimes it's just uh, not everything. You're not going to get everything at once. You have to sort of go back and listen to it for a while. Or uh, I, I'm, I'm guilty of uh, of, te- of, te- of te- what, what could you call describe it as you know tend uh, tangentialism you know I, just, I always go a different path so <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of my fault that I you know any stream I tend to go on has a blowout time wise so it's almost always my fault. <laughs> uh, well, am stream am streams in general are just so long anyway, so I'm not really sh- I'm not totally sure it's it's just you. <laughs> um, no, no, all good. But yeah, no. So yes. One of the uh, most interesting things about the coronation is the change with the anointing and with the fact that it, the uh, oil was uh, consecrated by an Eastern Orthodox bishop alongside the, sort of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I think, or maybe not the Archbishop of Canterbury, but the, the Anglican uh, Patriarch of Jerusalem, I think. So, it's strange that he goes to the east for this uh, consecration, which an Anglican wouldn't think it would be necessary for an Eastern Orthodox bishop to do the consecration. And, you know, from a Catholic perspective, it's the only way for it to be, uh, you know, really consecrated oil. So what do you think about sort of that, that, uh, that change and do you think it has any real effect um well let's just sort of dive into that ever so slightly it's because prince philip um is essentially himself a descendant of the of the greek monarchy which at the time that prince philip was born was still an active part of greek politics they still actually had a monarchy as such um i believe the greek monarchy um only dissolved i think after oh, actually might have admitted the lead up to world war ii because i know there was this sort of dispute between king george and Ionis metaxas um you know leading up to world war ii and then obviously with german you know occupation by the italians and the germans and then they had a civil war after world war ii um and then after that they had military junta um you know the the greek monarchy has fallen on hard times you might say but but philip um himself was was born um was born into that to that monarchy and uh, obviously was a descendant of of that line and himself was uh you know a, a, an orthodox greek as the greek family uh, royal family sort of are and uh, and obviously you know prince philip is a you know descends from that and thus being this sort of um if you could call him the the prince consort of queen elizabeth ii obviously their children would have that lineage too and obviously though queen elizabeth ii was uh as is the case of the british monarchy is the also the head of the church of england um which obviously pertains to the fact that they're going to be protestant and that their descendants will be protestant there's still that orthodox heritage um that coincides with the, the greek you know introduction the introduction of shall i say greek lineage into the british royal line into the into the Windsor family, and so that answers that as to why that's the case. And I think um, in the end, I'm 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 neither a specialist on the British monarchy nor am I British. Um, I'm sort of British by a sort of extension, being an Australian. But and and I, I'm perhaps my uh, my colleague and peer, Apostolic Majesty, would be better suited to answer this. But I'll just uh, perhaps. Um, touch on this angle very slightly that 
because of the historical animosity between Catholics and Anglicans in England and in Britain as a result of the, you know, the Henry VIII and the, 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 the Tudors and all of that, you know, the, the establishment of the Church of England and as a consequence sort of by the Protestant Reformation and large, there is, it, it would be in my belief that there would be more hostility to the idea of a Catholic, um, how can I put this, like a, a sort of an intermarriage or an intermingling of Catholics into the royal family than Greek Orthodox. I think there's less um, contention to that. Um, so that's a point probably worth considering. Um, I don't know if that answers your question specifically, but... Yeah, it's interesting. In the previous episode, we discussed that uh, basically no, you know, no Catholic can become a king or uh, queen of um, the United Kingdom be because of the law, because of the succession laws, but that that it says it's just only uh, Catholics. Any pretty much technically anybody else could be. It it doesn't even prohibit necessarily like you know non Christians to become the uh, mm. uh, monarch, but specifically Catholics. So mm -hmm. by law, it's still at least there's that keeping um the catholics away from the royal family though obviously i think you can i think you can marry a catholic and still you know be um king or queen uh now by law which i don't know what camilla's sort of religiosity is or anything like that but, I have no idea, but I presume that she would be Church of England or Uniting Church or something like that. You know, being I, British yeah, I just know she British, was uh, uh, aristocracy. I know she was just married. Her marriage was a Catholic marriage. Oh, okay. That was as, her in, her, as in her previous one, or yes, and I believe okay, she. Yeah. I've heard she got an annulment as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't know how that works. If she has any connection with that, or if she, you know, had a Catholic wedding only because maybe her husband was, or her original husband was Catholic, but I, I don't know if that has any effect. I I feel like with them, religion is just sort of symbolic, <laughs> mostly, anyways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, indeed. Um, but yeah, I, I can't say I know for certain, so I won't. I won't speculate. Um, but but yes, I will. Uh, I, I don't know the, how the, how the ruling is at the moment or what the the laws are, but I've, I'm pretty sure that if a my understanding of of this point is that I'm quite certain that if someone in the royal line of succession becomes Catholic, converts to you know to, to the Catholic faith, they actually they are by law removed from the line of succession. I do know that much. Um, so yes, I I think unlike previous times, they can marry in uh, they can marry. The, sorry. Anyone in the line of succession can marry a Catholic, and there's there's not a problem with that nowadays. But n uh, no one in the line of succession can themselves become Catholic because, obviously, as we have previously touched on, the the monarch of Great Britain, you know, the the British monarch, is the head of the Church of England, and that person cannot be Catholic. So, you know, it's kind of like one of those 
you know, they, they've arranged it as thus to ever prevent a Catholic restoration, which, you know, for those who know their history, it sort of touches into the, you know, the, the Jacobite rebellion and the House of Stuart. And, you know, obviously, if you go back further to, you know, the, the first Elizabethan age and, you know, the, um, the, the the tussles between the Catholics and the 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 newly established church under Henry VIII, the Tudor period, all that politics goes back that far. And and like you say, there's there's a deal of animosity that sort of bubbles underneath that question. Indeed, yes. So the closest per, uh, Catholic can come to the royal, uh, the sorry, the throne is co as consort at the moment. Essentially, yes. And then. With the anointing, though, there, it's very important to uh, very much in the sense that it is one of the last vestiges of Christian monarchy left. I think it's the only, uh, only well, the only coronation left. The last one, I think, was the papal coronation before this, and then before that was Queen Elizabeth. But even reigning, even monarchs that uh, are, you know, sovereigns, other places haven't been, um, haven't been coronated, like the, such as the king of Spain was not coronated when he was made king. He, I think he was just proclaimed. And of course, proclamation is what makes you king. It's not necessarily the coronation though the coron the anointing and the coronation sort of brings the religiosity the sort of the religious element into um into the discussion so what do you think about sort of that 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 it's sort of the last remaining coronation because obviously there hasn't been a papal coronation and uh, you know unless there's sort of a pious the 13th i don't think we'll see one in the near future yeah, well, uh, certainly from the, the the Western Christian tradition, which, you know, we, we can describe that as being sort of either Catholic or, you know, Protestant in nature. Um, I'm pretty sure they're... I'm just trying to think whether, if memory serves me correct, uh, the Italian king outlived the war, um, Vittorio Emanuele, because I know his son Umberto was prince, and I just can't exactly remember the... The chronology actually i might just quickly uh, wikipedia check that because i got a feeling that that would have been a, a christian restoration but then sorry a, a christian coronation um but uh obviously with italy's defeat in in world war ii and then um and then there was a um what do you call it not not a plebiscite essentially a referendum on the monarchy in uh in italy and in 1946 they chose to um they chose to dissolve the monarchy. Okay, no, no, here, here you go. Um, Prince Umberto II reigned from the 9th of May until the 12th of June. He was not even king for barely a month, uh, five <laughs> weeks essentially. Um, and it was in uh, the monarchy was abolished by uh, President Di, Di Nicola in 1946 as a result of the referendum, which was a very close run referendum. As things like 52-48 or you know 51-49, it was very very close. So like, um, it was like a Brexit thing. It was like the yeah, president, exactly. the, the Trump yeah. Clinton uh, election knife edge. Yeah. And obviously in the immediate aftermath of world war two, you can imagine there was heightened tensions between sort of left and right and, you know, traditionalists and revolutionaries and that sort of stuff. Um, so I would presume that that would have been 
um, a Christian, you know, themed or, or, or rather a, a coronation steeped in, 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 a, in a Christian tradition and, um, you know, would have been sort of, there would have been an anointing of some kind. I don't know. I'm just sort of surmising. Um, and then you would have had Elizabeth's coronation in, um, oh God, what was it? 50, was it 56? Elizabeth became queen. I've just gone blank. Anyway, um, you know, then she was monarch for all of this time. And as you say, we haven't had one up until Charles. And there's no power in Europe that really has a monarchy. Like I said, Italy dissolved theirs in, in sort of 1946. Um, I'm not terribly sure the, the, the status with the Spanish, you know, with, with the, with the, the, how the monarchy interacts with the, the government sort of post-Franco in Spain. I'm not sure of that. And then we've obviously got sort of monarchies in name in places like um, the Netherlands and, and Denmark and what have you. But again, those places probably even more secular than England in many ways or, or Britain. So we can hardly sort of count on them as being real, you know, having this process of anointing and a real Christian kind of uh, cultural tradition to it in the same way that, you know, with what we saw with Charles's um, coronation. Indeed. Yeah, it's just interesting that it's sort of the only, it, even though it's, you know, as a Catholic, it's only the the only coronation sort of left behind is the is the Protestant one, though it's it definitely sort of it's a callback. It, it sort of shines a light on something that is missing from our societies. And, you know, you brought up talking about sort of the left wing and the sort of the right wing in in Europe one of the things i enjoy most about talking about you know sort of european politics is there's actually a traditional wing of of politics there while in america it's just a lib it's just two different liberal sides going uh, one less uh one less socialist than the other mhm so Indeed. The el the elements, the symbols of the coronation of the monarchy is quite interesting to me because as an American, it, you know, I sort of have sort of some some of the historical understanding of the connections. But, you know, I think most Americans look at the uh, trappings of a monarchy, the spurs, the sword, the arm reels, the our arm meals, the robe and stole the the um the royal stole sorry the orb the ring the glove the scepter and the rod as well as the crown and i don't think americans really have an understanding of the purpose of that so um do you do you know much about sort of the symbols of these I, I honestly don't. Uh, I, I actually did watch the coronation, funnily enough, and sort of each one is symbolic of a of a different aspect of 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 monarchy. You know, the the orb is representative of something, the staff is representative of something, and then obviously the crown itself is. You know, it's it's if I can borrow uh, something from theology, and by all means, stop me if I'm making an erroneous comparison. But you know how they sort of say that you know there's there's sort of a you know. Uh, I put this i'm just trying to think of how to how to compare this okay about the crown specifically you know we talk we talk of the the throne in a figurative sense we talk of the throne as you know 
this person is the king or queen and this person sits upon the throne or wears the crown and it's sort of a figure of speech to to um to state uh something as it is right but then there is the physical crown there is you know that crown when it sits upon you know someone's head means that that person then is the monarch it's it's not just the figurative it's the literal um and you know in some ways you could probably sort of say you know with some of our um so you know some things that we do as catholics like in terms of when we you know go to mass or you know we we go to confession or for instance if we partake in um you know in the the eucharist and we sort of you know we consume the the body and blood of christ that you know a lot of people think it's figurative but actually you know per the words it is in fact you know we believe it to be the body and blood of christ you know it's it's that sort of crossover or that intermingling of the figurative and the literal um and a throw and a crown is very much that so um you know, I, I know that doesn't really answer your question, but I, I guess, you know, it was worth touching on because in the end, you know, when you think of a king per se or, or, or a monarch or a queen, you know, we, yes, these other aspects matter, the staff, the orb, you know, you see old old um, paintings, for instance, of say Charlemagne or, um, you know, like even the Byzantine emperors, you know, there's, a, there's actually quite a famous painting of, uh, uh, sorry, a, a famous uh, depiction of Alexis Komnenos, for instance, and they have the, the ball and the, the so they have the orb and the staff in opposite hands. Um, so they, these are these are, you know, uh, demonstrations of imperial or, or royal regalia. But the the throne, uh, uh, sorry, I keep saying this, I keep saying throne, but the crown is really the definitive thing that sort of displays that temporal power that a monarch has. Um, and like I say, you sort of have that 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 figurative reference as the that that person is the crown or that person is you know king or queen. But then they place that physical crown on their head, and it confirms that you know in in actuality. Yeah, you you do often talk about military history. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's probably alongside sort of culture, languages, and geography. That's my bread and butter. Yes. So, so what to sort of spurs the sor swords and those types of things are very much connected to the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So what do those sort of what do they make you think of in the battlefield? What what sort of how how are they used? Um, well, that's the thing. They're more um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word now. Um, they're more. Uh, not celebratory that's not the term i'm looking for they're more um uh sorry i'm just trying to think of the the correct term to describe it uh you know when for instance you have soldiers that sort of go on parade you know like for example you know, like the, the beef eaters outside of buckingham palace you know it's more um palatial is not the word i'm trying to think of but you know it's sort of more um sort of celebratory than functional i suppose is a way of saying it and see i think in the british context it is it is a reference and it's a harkening back to its warrior kings. You know, it's, um, you got to think the England as we know it today in terms of being a, a um, I suppose it never stopped really being Anglo-Saxon in, in the sense of the word that, you know, the genealogy still existed in England, even now amongst you know, native British people. But, um, you know, up to the events of Hastings, you know, the invasion of England by William of Normandy and then a William of Normandy, obviously, being victorious at the Battle of Hastings and, you know, Harold Gonwitz and 
being killed on the field of battle um, and he became king of England, uh, you have this Norman era of England sort of, you know, morphs into, you know, the Plantagenets and the Angevin Empire, etc. And the establishment of that era, that establishment of that epoch, starts with a, a a warrior king you know william of normandy fought for many years in normandy to um ensure his succession because he was pardon for saying this on your stream he was a bastard before he became before he was known as william the conqueror he was called william the bastard for instance um and so he was a warrior king and you can say one of the most obvious examples to anyone that has any knowledge of western sort of the canon of western history Richard the Lionheart is probably the, the, one of the greatest exemplars of, of a warrior king, um, you know, whether it's his, you know, ventures in, in, in the Holy Land or whether it's his, you know, his squabbles in, in continental France, in Normandy, where he was eventually killed by a crossbowman. Um, you know, Richard Lionheart, even today, still celebrated as that, you know, that warrior king. And, and the same, too, can be even said of, um, uh, you know, of uh, if you look back to the, you know, the real thick of the Hundred Years' War, and you you know you look at these uh you know Richard Richard uh, sorry uh, Henry V at you know Agincourt and um and uh, at the Battle of Cressy you know you have uh, the uh, I'm trying to think which king it was um who who fought at uh, Cressy um I've just gone blank but you know he his his son the the prince is 16 years old and the French are you know pressing hard upon his position. And he's you know surrounded by his knights and his men at arms and you know the king his father says you know let the boy earn his spurs <laughs> you know and and he's got the cream of the french aristocracy always encircling his position and as a result of you know tactics and english esprit de corps and you know geography and whatever the, the english prevail at cressy cressy ends up being sort of a slaughterhouse almost as a as a prelude to agincourt um but uh but you know the, the 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 English hold their position and and they win and you know the prince is much celebrated by his fellow soldiers and uh, you might say that the the faith that um, his father placed in him was was uh, you know was uh, justified oh, that's what I remember now it was Edward the Third um, and uh, and his uh, and his son who uh, who fought in, against uh, I want to say Philip the Fourth of France anyway yeah um, so there's this tradition of english kings fighting um and and, and having a, a martial capability um that was you know has been celebrated in in british and english history up until you know you could say the the, the up until modernity up until sort of like the end of the world wars uh in a way that they're not celebrated anymore like this sort of this agenda of sort of loathing these things is only something that's relatively modern. Um, you know, we could we could perhaps just call it a barbarous innovation of, of modernity and of liberal interpretations of history. But um, you know, I, I actually remember talking to my own my own father a couple of days ago, and he was saying, you know, I still remember as a, as a young schoolboy in Australia learning the lyrics to you know British Grenadiers and learning about the Battle of Agincourt. You know, as as a primary schooler. Um, you know, and so these things have been really instilled in the British psyche for a very, very long time. And I, I, I dare say that the the idea of the the swords, the sword, and the spurs uh, are an acknowledgement of that militaristic past that is sort of it is in, is inseparable from the concept of of monarchy. And what saddens me to some degree is that 
if that remained true, we would probably have a better monarchy, would actually have a better country, would have we would have better societies if we, you know, if we were so lucky to be led by such people. <laughs> but we don't live in those times anymore, regrettably. Well said. I also imagine that it's sort of putting sort of the trust of military defense and military leadership in the monarch when they're when they're granted when he's granted the spurs and the swords and stuff like that and also just the defense of the people there's a lot of sort of element of it where he where it goes back and forth with the sword i think they hand it to him and then they take it back and then they hand it to him back and i, I think that's probably has something to do with uh sort of where the power really lies or where it's supposed to uh, reside obviously the monarch is given power in 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 what it's, it's supposed to do in the coronation though he seemingly has very little and then but it's also the church is the one you know sort of handing him the sword and the uh at least i think so and it sort of recognizes God as the true authority of, you know, above kings. Yeah, it's it sort of, and also it's, a, it's a, if I can just try and think about it, articulate this point, is that essentially the use of temporal powers are blessed by the church, are blessed by the representatives of the church, and that in some ways being bestowed them by clergymen you know, in the case of the British, it would be, you know, the, uh, well, actually, technically, if memory serves me correct, it wasn't even the Arch Archbishop of Canterbury, it was the other clergyman who I believe was conducting the, the main part of the service um, that that did that, you know, handing to and fro with these, these articles. Um, it's also, I think, if you go back far enough in history, you know, I mentioned William the Conqueror before, um, William the Conqueror actually undertakes his campaign from Normandy to England with the blessing of the Pope. As a matter of fact, which you know, again, sort of harkens back to this interesting contradiction about the the animosity with Catholics in in England is that for them to actually have this animosity in some ways kind of forces them to cleave apart their own history apart. You know, William the Bastard was a Catholic. You know, Richard Lionheart was a Catholic. You know, Edward the First was a Catholic. You know, all these great monarchs of England were Catholics prior to the to the um you know to the period of Henry the Eighth and the Tudors. Um, and you know, and thereafter, you might say, as an extension of the Protestant, uh, you know, the the Protestant Reformation, um, and, and yeah, there's always been this sort of intersection between a, a, a blessing by the Pope and you know, this idea, these concepts of um, of divine right, and you know, derivative of that, you know, concepts of noblesse oblige, and this intersection of different elements of society being sort of intertwined and being interrelated with each other which I think is lost in the wash of modernity. I think, you know, a lot of ill-educated people or people with political ideological agendas just like to sort of see, you know, basically like an oppression hierarchy. If you have a, a king and a, these aristocrats and then these, you know, petty earls and barons and whatever, and they just oppress people for the sake of oppressing them, not that there's a, a cyclical and, and reciprocal relationship with these things. Yes, there is, there is a hierarchy and yes, certain levels of that have more or less authority than the other, but they tr more truly exist as a, as a circle rather than as a top-down pyramid. Um, certainly, and as, and, and we see this, for instance, with the creation of the Magna Carta, the Barons war against King John, um, when 
several of those elements of society are truly oppressed by a bad king, then a bad king can be dismissed. You know, I'm sure you and I have probably heard arguments before, or like, oh, what do you do with a bad king? It's like, well, <laughs> many bad kings and emperors have met bad ends. That's the point of having, you know, these um these estates of the realm that are mutually supporting of each other. And if one of them happens to be corrupt, then the others neutralize that corruption. Um, so that was a bit of a tangent. I apologize. But, you know, um, again, I think the idea of that blessing, whether it's papal in the case of Roman Catholics or in the case of Britain and England, you know, the Church of England, um, it's that idea that there are greater responsibilities than just, you know, the the temporal or just the, um, just the regal or just the... Um, you know the, the 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 pomp and ceremony in isolation. There's actually a whole raft of responsibilities and moral oblig obligations that comes with being a monarch, that ironically don't come with being a politician or a president. You know, if you get my drift. Um, so I think that's an important function in that regard. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Also, the I think the orb is sort of an under a uh, the understanding of christ's kingship over the world i think that's the purpose of the orb I, I think you're right yeah and i don't know if the crown has this connection and may, you can probably tell me about like if they're like ancient crowns and stuff like that but it, it seems so you know it makes me think of the crown of thorns it's also really heavy too so it's not you know it just as the just as the mass is an unbloodied uh sacrifice the you know sort of wearing a crown that isn't bloody either mm, yeah i didn't actually think of it in those terms but it's a good point um yeah i, I might have to stew on that because yeah like i said i didn't really think of that but yeah it's a good point that you make about the crown and um so all, all this stuff you you mentioned the blessings by uh the catholic church even even Henry the Seventh and Henry the Eighth basically went to the Pope for permissions for various things, you know, prior to Henry the Eighth's uh, break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the 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 first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury, I believe, was uh, was Cramner, and he was um, he was granted the position by the Pope. Yeah. Well, well, well. This is the thing too. You know, the there's a again. This way, sort of historical amnesia sort of becomes the thing. Is that if you look at the creation of the Magna Carta, for instance, the the Mag, the, the well, what became the later edition of the Magna Carta, because there were sort of a few iterations before they got to the one that we now know today, was um, was essentially written up. It was com was compiled by Archbishop Langdon of Canterbury. Um, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury was a, was a biblical see before it became a Church of England see. Um, you know, a, a lot of the infrastructure the Church of England, you know, became master of was what the Catholics laid down before. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, Henry VII and the Eighth. I mean, Henry VIII, if you look at his sort of early phase of his life, was actually quite a, a devout Catholic. It was sort of more once his life was corrupted by excesses and he sort of had these power plays and, you know, felt like getting married several times you know essentially the creation of england is almost like this story of uh you know, the of, of of how to sort of you know i hate to I hate to paraphrase a movie title but sort of like how to create a religious uh, a, a, a religious um you know sub sub uh, what do you call it a um oh, 
I'm trying to think of the word. Um, you know, it's like trying to sort of create like a sub-religion in 10 days, you know. It's, <laughs> it's like trying to, you know, do something religious out of political expediency, which is what, you know, Henry VIII obviously did. So, yeah, that you know, there's that to sort of take into account as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm thinking about starting sort of a series on on English history uh, in the future, and it, it's uh, it's become so fascinating for me. I, I think you you talked about how the, even your dad, as an Australian Australian, learned about the Battle of Agincourt, and um, that was sort of ingrained in him as as a um, as a young person. Well, for Americans. The only thing we're, you know, we know probably by heart is the American Revolution, which, be, and this comes back to like historical amnesia. Like modernity has historical amnesia. You can't have modernity, I don't think, without historical amnesia. Yeah, that, that, that I think that's the secret source of modernity. You're right. I know that's not the nature of the stream, but just why you mentioned it. Yes, I think you're quite right. You know, um, you know, for instance, we, before we, we started, we sort of talked about Rome as an example. You know, it's the idea of sort of being a perennialist is having this overarching view that doesn't, you know, it, it's not 10, 20, 50, even 100-year perspective. You're thinking an entire epochs of civilization, entire cycles of civilization, you know. Um, and we as Catholics, you know, for instance, would understand that when a lot of people reference Rome in the in the Catholic notion, it's the idea of referencing the Pope and the Holy See and, you know, the and if you go back in history, the papal states and, you know, the authority of, 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 you know, St. Peter's Basilica and, you know, everything that goes with that. Whereas, you know, for example, if you're a classical historian, well, you know, your, your conception of Rome is a lot older. It's, it's the origin story of, you know, the, 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 the compiling of the Aeneid and this origin story of, you know, of Romulus and Remus and the, you know, the Kings of Alba Longa. And then, you know, the, the establishment of these seven little villages that become Rome and, you know, the of of the Etruscans and Tarquinus Superbus, and I mean, you're talking about stuff that you know is seven, eight, nine hundred BC. Um, so I, I totally get what you mean, and I think in varying degrees, many of us can suffer that kind of amnesia in different ways. Yeah, and then uh, lastly, regarding sort of the uh, the elements of sort of the crown jewels, the um. Is it the the stole or and I guess it's not the crown jewels, but the things used during the coronation. You know, they you have this priestly stole, this royal stole, uh, which brings back to uh, sort of King David and the royal priesthood. So all all these different things like that that specifically is going back, not just in uh, you know, not just. Thing, you know post new testament but all the way and even just in the new testament but bringing all the way back to the old testament absolutely you're talking about the things that even predate Rome at that point um because you know we, when you sort of get back to king david and, and solomon you're talking you know, that's basically bronze age you know you're talking you know the the babylonians and the assyrians and that sort of stuff uh and, and these ideas of um because a, a lot of um a lot of our ideas of, of monarchy actually have um, Eastern origins in that sense. You know, um, if you, if you, for instance, listen to our stream, particularly the, uh, our streams with, well, the ones I do with AM, you know, from on his channel, and we sort of talk about that transition period, you know, around the, the fall of the West Roman Empire and the, 
you know, the, the what you might call the birth of Byzantium or the transition of the East Roman Empire into the Byzantine Empire, as we sort of colloquially call it, you know, for chronological reasons, um, even though technically it's still the Roman Empire. But anyway, mm-hmm. I, I won't go down that tangent. <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 the idea that, you know, for instance, in the, during the Tetrarchy, right, um, the this is when Diocletian, uh, you know, in the in the tail end of the th- crisis of the third century, establishes the Tetrarchy, which is the rule of well. Initially, he breaks up the empire into two halves, and each Augustus in the western eastern half halves then have a, a deputy under them, which is called a Caesar. That's the rule of four. That's the Tetrarchy, and it's actually with the when Domitian, uh, sorry, uh, not Domitian, when Diocletian takes power after the Emperor Numerian and establishes the system they start to uh, adopt Eastern sort of potentates, Eastern modes of, of um, you might say, of, of, of royalty and regalia and imperium. You know, prior to this point, you have this sort of Julio-Claudian sort of, or, or, or you know, Augustus kind of princeps, first amongst equals sort of style of ruling. Um, whereas from that, the period of Diocletian and after, it's more in the sort of the, the Persian sort of spirit of, you know, they, they call the, the, the Shai Shah, you know, the, the, the king of kings. And, you know, what, what becomes the, the phrase in Byzantium, you know, Vasileos, Vasileon, Vasileton, Vasilevonton, king of kings, ruler of kings. Um, you start to then see these, um, these artifacts that resemble, you know, power, you know, the idea of these, these crowns being used. Because, I mean, you know, the, the, the emperors of old, really didn't use crowns in the same way that you know medieval kings did you know you start to see crowns and staffs and the orb comes you know after the christianization of the empire but like you say these even have their origins you know with with david and solomon and you see them again like in the in Archimedes persia to some degree alexander adopts them and these are eastern ideas uh, when i say east they're primarily sort of like persian and levantine ideas that become Europeanized and they become Europeanized through, you know, then the adoption of, of Christianity by Constantine the Great, um, you know, at, at the end of the third century crisis. And then these, you know, um, these modes, uh, or not modes, but these stylized, st- 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, the these, mm, sorry, stop coming to me. Um, these items that we associate with monarchy, right? These these uh, symbols of power and majesty that we sort of very much associate with monarchy, then after the fall of West Rome, are adopted by its successor kingdoms. You know, the, it's the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the Franks and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, because Britannia was a part of the empire for, for the best part of four centuries, so do the the Britanno-Romans inherited, and then the Anglo-Saxons who conquered them inherited. So you have this 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 uh, civilizational inheritance, right? By which um, these symbols and these um, these artifacts that demonstrate monarchy and what we would come to understand as you know divine right of kingship become used and adopted in Europe. Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer to the question, but no, no, yeah. it, it, you're, there's a long burst of time between these things happening. <laughs> You're coming up with uh, other streams in the middle of this one, uh, um, which is great too. Though it, we might end up needing a part three of the series because yeah, see, I, see, um, I told you'd be my fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny. So now this is a map of the Commonwealth in uh, 
as of November 30th, 2021. I don't think it's changed at all. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. No, I, th- I think this is accurate map. Now, can you sort of explain as a member of the Commonwealth what the Commonwealth is? Actually, you kind of put me on the spot because I don't really have a definition for it. But <laughs> suffice to say, it is it can probably be des- best described as a community which some nations remain technically within the Commonwealth and others aren't not technically a part of the Commonwealth, as you can see on these two very these two shades of blue on the map here. But um, but haven't actually broken away from it as such. You know, like for example, South Africa and India and Pakistan, and Kenya. Uh, Nigeria, etc. Um, these places uh, sort of nominally don't sort of count themselves within the active Commonwealth, but still sort of identify with it for diplomatic reasons or uh, for, um, you know, in terms of one of the things that actually occurs in the Commonwealth is we have the Commonwealth Games, which is like a junior version of the Olympics that is only participated with amongst Commonwealth countries. And for instance, you know, India, Pakistan, you know, Kenya, Nigeria, all these countries I mentioned do partake in the Commonwealth Games. And we tend to also engage with, uh, you know, within the Commonwealth. Into, uh, we, we use it as an avenue, for instance, to establish trade relations. Um, I mentioned diplom- diplomacy before. And also we tend to have quite a close cultural exchange because essentially the overarching lingua franca of the Commonwealth is obviously English because of the British Empire. And so, you know, we tend to um, we tend to often engage in, uh, for instance, Australia uh, just recently, I think, introduced like a visa program for for the subcontinent for India and for Pakistan, like for their students to come over here. Um, again, because of a a sort of a shared identity with the Commonwealth, I suppose is the best way to describe it. Um, but the Commonwealth, as you sort of see it here, are the parts of the old empire that more or less stayed, um, if not loyal to Britain outright, um, share. A, a a cultural and you know a cultural heritage and, and lineage to the empire that predated it uh, for instance but some parts uh, probably have a more patchy relationship than others like for example south africa uh although for instance south african soldiers fought for the british empire for, you know in both world wars leading up to world war one you have the the first and second boer war especially the second boer war was particularly um you know there is the word you know, maybe gruesome is a bit far but you know it was it was a very hard fought war and it was very uh very t- tumultuous and and um you know painstaking for the people who endured it um and uh and you know a- and a lot of people suffered to the extent where the british actually built camps in 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 south africa right um you know and then of course during the path and in the latter part of the apartheid period south africa was essentially embargoed from international sport including within the commonwealth so you know there's been a lot of uh, wrangling there where say you know i could be mistaken but say kenya's relationship with the commonwealth is a bit bit less fraught it's a bit it's a bit more straightforward um and obviously say canada australia new zealand as sort of their own sovereign countries and they were the the first dominions within the british empire to be granted sort of well in australia for instance we had federation in 1901 and we, uh, our prime minister back then was uh, a man by the name of Eden Bart- Barton. Um, and, uh, you know, we had our own parliament and our own Senate and our own elected bodies. And Australia basically went, followed Britain into all of its wars in the first half of the 20th century. 
as an independent power, although I believe as of World War One, technically our foreign policy was tied to Britain, as was Canada, as was New Zealand. But as a result of but um, in terms of World War Two, that changed. All the aforementioned countries countries followed Britain into World War Two voluntarily, despite the fact they were sort of technically still a part of the Commonwealth and sort of not quite vassals of the empire. But you get what I mean. Um, they were sort of federated and independent countries with their own foreign policy. And, uh, and so, yeah, that's just basically the distinction between these two. So you, uh, the Commonwealth is at this point is basically a loosely connected, um, uh, tr- sort of somewhat trade organization, somewhat, uh, a, a trade and cultural union. You could probably describe it as, yeah. Okay. And I did. So Australia has a Senate. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is that is it work kind of? So there's no No, lords or anything. No, 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 no. So, so essentially, Australia is broken up into several states. Uh, So, for instance, we have Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, uh, Western Australia, and then we have two territories: you have the Northern Territory and the Australian Capital Territory. Um, The territories have a different status um, for reasons. But every other state um, elects, you know, its own senators to to represent themselves in the Senate. Uh, if memory serves me correct, I think it's six or eight um, senators, and there, uh, it's it's sort of a really strange system that we have because obviously, you know, in in America you've got your own sort of voting system. In the United Kingdom, they have what they call first past the post. And then here we have an extremely complicated preferential system, which don't ask me how it works. Australians don't know how it works. It's wow. really, really stupid. Um, Lovely. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you, you imagine democracy would be easy, but they, they managed to sort of make it all, you know, confusing and, you know, they, they obfuscate sort of the important aspects of it. But anyway, I digress. Um, and so the each, each state, is is sort of in a similar way that you know um you know you'd have uh like your i actually don't know how it works in in the united states i'm actually sort of more familiar with you know like the um you know the electoral college than how you actually elect your representatives in in the you know congress and the senate but you know for us it's the case if we have our our states are broken up into electoral districts and then they elect their member of parliament and those members of parliament then make up our lower house which would be the equivalent of your um your uh is because you got the senate what's your other house of representatives house House of reps yeah so your house of reps and our lower house are the same right our our, our lower house of parliament and so those representatives will sort of like either belong to a party or they could be independent you know that they'll be left you know liberal labor greens whatever and they comprise of our lower house and then the upper house like i said the senate is as in according to the basically the balance of vote from each from each state they will send i think i think the number is six or eight i can't remember um as a proportion of votes then comprise of the senate from each state. So that's how that works but then the, you know the house of lords is different in in britain our, our, their lower house now lower house basically more or less work the same way um but it's very different from the american system obviously yeah so our we have districts and then in those districts it's uh majority you know whoever gets the majority of votes 
uh, gets yeah. goes to the House of Representatives, and House then of Reps, yeah. the Senate is kind of the same in that regard. Yeah, like your districts and our our um, our um, I'm trying to think of what, what we call our constituencies, but yeah, like they're the same comparable. Like okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and our Senate is what used to be uh, voted. It used to be elected by the assemblies of each mm-hmm. state, but it it became basically democratized. Um, and now is basically, uh, each state elect, uh, has two senators and they elect, uh, by majority or, Mm -hmm. you know, or not majority by whoever gets the most votes, um, becomes the Senator and then they go to the Senate. Yep. Okay. So, but yeah, but obviously the, the British is, and when you sort of consider the parliament is almost the a late medieval, if not like a Renaissance period conception, uh, you know, it's very different. Like, for instance, I've actually have no idea how the house of laws even operates, you know? So it's, it's a very, it's, it's, you might say it's a system of its time, but of course forces of um, progressivism have eroded the house of Lords. Um, and even now, like it's not, it's not the, the place it used to be in terms of being able to sort of act as a check against you know, ambitious politicians in in the lower house. So, you know, many yeah, such cases. Yeah, I think that I think it hasn't been able to do anything like it hasn't checked anything since like 1911 or something like that. Uh, and then, you know, once they got rid of the hereditary peers, I think at least some of them. I don't know how that worked, but uh, some of the hereditary peers are gone, and now they just uh, pick new peers. Uh, from basically whoever was whoever supported the prime minister, it sound it's yeah. at least it sounds the like ru- it. the the rubber rubber stamp shortlist. Yeah, yeah, that's just it. It just sounds like it sounds worse than a senate, and it sounds worse than like it's basically to me. It sounds like it's a spoiled system. It's a spoil system that uh, to me is way worse than anything elected. Um. But yeah, yeah so that, at least that's my understanding. I could be, I, I could obviously be wrong in some of this stuff, but that's my understanding of it. Now, the the Commonwealth did the Commonwealth look to this coronation? Was there any was there support in that? Uh, well, really, since the uh, since the low point, which was associated with the death of Princess Diana back in, I want to say ninety seven. Um, the monarchy has had a steady rise in popularity through the, the majority of the Commonwealth, and Australia's been no exception. Uh, in fact, Australia, uh, I believe we had a referendum on the, on the Republic in 1998. It was actually soon after Diana's death, which was soundly rejected. And the, Republic, the Republican cause here has been essentially a laughing stock and a, a nothing burger ever since. Um, so the, the monarchy has been increasingly popular. And in fact, I believe Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip visited Australia, I, I want to say 2011 or 2010 thereabouts. Um, and to much fanfare, actually, they were sort of very warmly welcomed. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, I think people have gradually warmed to, to now King Charles. Um, 
and I, I think it's safe to say that a lot of people who like the monarchy have very much a soft spot for for uh for prince william and for kate as well so i think the future t- prospects of the monarchy are quite safe in that regard in terms of their popularity it's just you know as we were alluding to prior to going you know to, to starting the stream here is the monarchy a captured institution i guess is the ultimate question uh and you know what kind of real powers reside in the monarchy which you know i suppose we might touch on that at some point or maybe if we do part three we can discuss that at further length but um you know yeah it's it's a case of that if you looked at the coronation there were contingents you know particularly when they you know do the marching parade you know from when they sort of move from from uh westminster abbey and they make their way to 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 you know to the palace you know there were contingents of you know australians and new zealanders and you know all the countries i mentioned before south africa you know kenya nigeria ghana um and and particularly uh there was a, a strong real, relatively strong representation you know from the caribbean where obviously the the uh the commonwealth you know for for a time you know, exercised a lot of power uh and even um you know sri lanka india pakistan they they were all given their sort of their spot during the coronation and you know a lot of enthusiasm was seen by those contingents that marched in the parade and even people went to travel to the uk for the coronation there were people from all around the world and and there were even people who were non-commonwealth people who went there I mean, like for in fact there's sort of like this really interesting slither of americans that are sort of enamored by the british monarchy um you know i think they interviewed like some lady who was from if memory serves me correct she was from like dallas or something she was saying texas and you know she just you know, she loved the queen for some random reason and she you know, flew over there for the coronation so uh, you know that's that sort of touching uh, and i think also too that the british monarchy being the last surviving monarchy in western europe and again am and i have touched on that in some of our streams because there's a bit of you know background political history behind that but suffice to say as the last monarchy in western europe i think a lot of people particularly those of us who share like a more traditionalistic or more perennial outview on life and on, on, on our own politics, see that the, the monarchy and the celebration of monarchy and the pomp and ceremony that is, you know, that goes along with the, with the, particularly the British form of monarchy. Uh, we see it as something of a touching stone to a past age. And we see it as maintaining certain things as, uh almost being sacrosanct and that if you care about notions of tradition if you care about notions of you know the, this idea that as a part of being traditional that we as we are are only sort of temporary guardians of a tradition that we sort of inherit from our predecessors and we pass down to our successors and that the the forms of monarchy and the celebration of monarchy and you know when you see like you know with the uh, with the anointing and the coronation and, and all, all of that you actually see that occur in real time you actually see it not just in a figurative sense you see it very literally as you know the the, the temporal power of a monarch being transferred from one generation to the next and i think that's a very powerful um it's a, it's a powerful idea and i think it's a powerful um you know representation of 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 institu- institutional continuity you know that we don't really see in, in in our sort of civilizations anymore 
Indeed. I don't know if you know this, but uh, monarchy is actually popularity is on the rise, not just the British monarchy, um, but monarchy uh, in the American mindset is on the rise with the, with uh, the younger generations. There's absolutely no support amongst sort of the boomers and the uh, Gen Xers, uh, but it's it's um, becoming more popular as as in like a you know monarchy would be good for us or you know we're not sure it's at least it's more closer to that with the younger generation which is very very impressive in my opinion mm. though i don't know but, what but, but yeah i was gonna say you, you guys kind of missed the opportunity to have a king didn't you <laughs> in some ways <laughs> exactly yeah. we uh we kind of messed that up uh there are people who you know joke about a uh about king DeSantis. you know that's sort of uh a thing amongst people or at least a king of florida or something like that when it, when they look at you know the most conservative state at the moment or yeah you know, most conservatively mm. run state um which is very Cause, interesting because part of me for asking you know for, obviously as an american now who was who when when obviously you know the the americas the 13 states were successful in the war of independence right they were they unless i'm mistaken they were toying with the with the possibility of actually inviting one of the british aristocrats to be a king for a time weren't they even if it wasn't particularly serious it was an entertained thought wasn't it i thought it, yeah i thought it was brownie prince charlie actually i think that was yeah, yeah that was yeah, entertained I yeah uh, i thought they offered it to him and he he was on he his health was such had such declined that there was no possibility for it. Okay. I wasn't too sure. And then, I mean, I have, I don't know whether this is just sort of apocryphal or whether it's just sort of, you know, flights of fancy, but even the idea that potentially Washington could be a potential, you know, King of America, or is that more sort of like old, old history kind of fanciful thinking? I don't think, I think he never uh, sort of accepted the notion of it. I think he's, I mean, I think they, I think if anybody, if an American was made king, I think that would have been the person that they would have chosen. But in some ways, they basically just made him king anyways, just without the title. Yeah. President King Washington. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he also put down like the first uh, one of the first rebellions that led to uh, the the what I'm I'm starting to think of as the first coup in American history. Which mm -hmm. is the uh, the the Constitution is basically the first coup. Uh, yeah, actually, actually, funny. I was watching a stream recently. I I, I want to say it might have been Oren McIntyre and Prudentialist. They sort of touched on on that sort of you know you sort of have the you know the the Declaration of the Independence and then you've got that what's that other document the uh, is it the oh that's the the articles of confederation or whatever yes. it is is that yes yeah. articles of confederation articles and then you wind up with the the constitution thereafter yeah it's actually like a multi-step process it's not just sort of one linear thing um and it just seems like parliament's actually trying to like go the opposite way parliament's trying to uh take a sort of more of a presidential system, which they in some sense have in the form of a monarchy, not really presidential system exactly, but they're trying to put all power in, in the form of parliament, which is exactly mm -hmm. what uh, the articles of confederation did. Yeah, exactly. Which, but which didn't work. Know, 
yeah, I was going to say, and we know the kind of uh, in you know the, the kind of groups and individuals of that sort of system and powers. But again, another discussion for another day. Um, well, I think we're going to have to. Um, hmm. I think we're going to have to get, uh, do part two uh, <laughs> because we haven't gotten the last last two slides, yeah. and uh, I That's know right. we, we have to go. So um, uh, just just quickly, just on that point, sorry, because you mentioned the popularity of monarchy. I want to touch on the fact that it's interesting that the the countries that lost monarchs after World War Two, in this case, uh, well, Germany lost theirs after World War One, but it's interesting that the in Germany there ha there hasn't been such popularity for the Hohenzollerns as there has been now. Basically, the idea of a, a return to monarchy in Germany has not been stronger than now, mm -hmm. um, and also there has been quite a recent uptick of the popularity in of the monarchy in Italy. And uh, there are several members of the Italian royal family, the House of um, the House of uh, Piedmonte, the the uh, the House of Savoy, um, who who actually are chafing for it as well. So you actually have sort of like grassroots and upper support for that in in Italy. And and, 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 and it's just interesting that in the context of the modern day, with all the 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 the, the foibles of of modernity, that for some you know somehow some way there's been this little uptick of um of popularity of the idea of monarchy which i find almost sort of incontrovertible to the you know the this progressive push of modernity and the fact that you know what's that saying by oron that you know cthulhu slims slowly but only slims leftwards um that it, despite all of that there's this uptick this random uptick of of um of monarchy and not just in britain and not just in you know this country or that country but it actually happens to be replicated across quite a few countries which is interesting to say it's definitely an oddity of modernity to like to, that has brought on but i also think that it's i don't know about if this is universe or if this happens in a number of royal families but in some royal families it seems that they also become they they have to if they want to ever return they have to prove themselves in a in a way that they didn't prior to their uh their overthrow and and i think that's maybe part of it you know looking towards some like somebody like uh the bourbon le legitimate claim it seems to be uh almost the uh, sort of an ideal monarch at least in the way he talks and stuff like that and then there are some Habsburgs that give off some of the similar ways, but then you look at some of the mo the monarchs currently in so have some you know sort of authority or have a throne. They seem a lot less desirable. Yeah, as as you say, as we both said, it is an oddity, but we'll just have to see where it goes. Because um, as things are now, there's probably no way for these monarchies to ever. Um, you know, reestablish themselves, but that's now. I guess we'll have to see what the future holds. Indeed, and maybe we'll live long enough to see uh, something like that change. And I apologize to all the people, uh, you know, why I'm not visible at the moment because usually I'm, you know, I my camera's usually on, but just my internet's been wonky, so I'm uh, yeah. using. Uh, I'm just uh, a voice for the moment. We, so we, diag we diagnose that pre-stream actually it was just yeah your camera was off it was fine then you turned it on it went patchy and then you turned it off and your bandwidth being perfect so it's just one of those oddities of the internet and the randomness of of a uh, you know of internet feed sadly 
Yeah. Th- thanks for pointing that out, Marcus. And uh, so Marcus, you know, we, we, uh, you have, you've been on apostolic majesty, you've been on academic agent, uh, channel, all these channels. Is, uh, do you have a place where people can find you? I mean, I Twitter, I imagine, but is there any other place? No, uh, at the moment, it's just sort of my ramblings on Twitter, uh, where I tend to tend to be located. Um, uh, it's just that it's more a case of real life priorities that I sort of don't have my own because the thing is between what I do with AM and uh, and then, for instance, when I'm say for example if i'm invited by say like the prudentialist or you know or on mcintyre like you know like usually it's of not always but often it's of a historical nature and so i have to do quite a lot of groundwork to get my facts straight and to like read things like for instance um i did a stream with iron duke about a week ago and we discussed this like new indigenous voice thing they're introducing in australia um and then after we had the show, I I said he goes, oh, you're the you're the guy in our circles, like who really you know gets Julius season. You've you know you, you've you've extensively spoken about him, and you know obviously, you've obviously read wrote about him. You know, can you come on my stream and do like a multi part series? So I have to go through all my books now, and like you know reread season and reread you know the tenth legion and you know or, or, you know his commentaries and you know I've done I've literally done that three times in uh, sorry I've done it like twice in three years. So you know like. <laughs> that becomes demand uh, when i say demanding i'm not ungrateful I, I love talking about these things but it's it's time intensive you know in combination with you know people doing their own thing you know privately speaking you know uh because I, I i work on the land myself you know i'm from a family farmers and you know that's sort of what i do so you know um sadly that sort of does preclude me for the moment of having my own channel but i i i do anticipate you know hopefully in the next sort of 18 months getting something up um and i had every intention of actually starting a sub stack which i haven't got around to doing a few people have like dm'd me castigating me for it so <laughs> i um i do i do apologize um but yeah just sort of life gets in the way sometimes but you know yeah i, I i'm kind of the um i'm a bit like mr d i just tend to bounce from channel to channel channel like some sort of ghost um that's sort of what i do for the time being but i appreciate every invite i get and i usually enjoy every conversation i have so Again, I have to uh, thank you for, for your invite. You're very kind invite. And, and it was a pleasure to jump on today. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for uh, coming. And I, uh, I think I can speak for everyone listening. Uh, your work is, is very is much appreciated by, you know, all the listeners. Because, you know, I've been listening to uh, as much as possible, as much of your Apostolic Majesty uh, stuff as possible. So thank you. And um, You're welcome. Thank you very much. Very kind of you. Uh, for all of you watching, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Join the Discord if you want to get updates and if you want to sort of interact with me more. Uh, and thank you all for watching, and God bless.